Section 38 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeannie Whitfield. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 22. Asiatic Russia, Armenia, Georgia, and Mingrelia. Part 1. Sophia Morand, The Russian Frontier, Nakhivan, Journey of the Caravan, A Knight's Imprisonment, Continuation of the Journey, Erevan, The Russian Post, The Tartars, Arrival in Tiflis, Sojourn There, Continuation of the Journey, Kutais, Morand, Trip on the Ribbon, Redukele, 11th August, the stations between Tibris and Nakhivan are very irregular. One of the longest, however, is the first, namely to the village of Sofia, which occupied us six hours. The road lay through valleys which were, for the most part, barren and uninhabited. As it was already three o'clock when we reached Sofia, the people there endeavored to prevent me from going any further. They pointed to the sun and at the same time signified that I might be attacked by robbers, plundered, and even murdered. But such statements had no influence with me, and after I had, with great trouble, ascertained that it would only require four hours to reach the next station, I determined to continue my journey. And to the vexation of my servant, whom I engaged as far as Natgevan, ordered him to saddle fresh horses. Immediately after leaving Sofia, we entered barren rocky valleys which my guide represented as being very dangerous, and which I should not have liked to pass at night. But as the sun was shining in full splendor, I urged on my horse, and amused myself by looking at the beautiful colors and groupings of the rocks. Some were of a glittering pale green, others covered with a whitish, half-transparent substance, others again terminated in numerous oddly formed angles and from the distance looked like beautiful groups of trees. There was so much to see that I really had no time to think of fear. About halfway lay a pretty little village in a valley, and beyond it rose steep mountain, on the summit of which a charming prospect of mountain country kept me gazing for a long while. We did not reach Moran until nearly eight o'clock, but still our heads, necks, and baggage were all safe. Morand lies in a fertile valley, and is the last Persian town which I saw, and one of the most agreeable and handsome. It has broad, clean streets, houses in good repair, and several small squares, with beautiful springs, which are, moreover, surrounded by trees. My shelter for the night was not so good as the town promised. I was obliged to share the court with the post-horses. My supper consisted of some roasted and very salt eggs. 12th August. Our journey for today was as far as Arax on the Russian border. Although only one stage, it took us eleven hours. We followed the course of a small brook which wound through barren valleys and ravines. Not a single village lay on our road, and with the exception of some little mills and the ruins of a mosque, I saw no more buildings in Persia. Persia is, on the whole, very thinly populated on account of the scarcity of water. 
No country in the world has more mountains and fewer rivers than Persia. The air is, on this account, very dry and hot. The valley in which Arax is situated is large, and the extraordinary formation of the mountains and rocks renders it very picturesque. In the extreme distance rise lofty mountains, of which Ararat is more than 16,000 feet in height, and in the valley itself there are numerous rocky elevations. The principal of these, a beautiful sharp rocky cone of at least 1,000 feet in height, is called the Serpent Mountain. The river Aras flows close to the headland. It separates Armenia from Medea, has a terrible fall and high waves. It here forms the boundary between the Russian and Persian dominions. We crossed in a boat. On the opposite side of the river were several small houses where travelers are obliged to stop and prove that they are not robbers, and especially that they are not politically dangerous. Occasionally they are detained in quarantine for some time when the plague or cholera happens to be prevalent in Persia. A letter from the Russian consul at Tabriz ensured me a very courteous reception. From the quarantine I was saved, as there was no plague or cholera. I had, however, scarcely set my foot upon Russian ground when the impudent begging for drink money began. The officer had among his people a Cossack, who represented himself as understanding German, and he was sent to me to ask what I wished for. The rogue knew about as much German as I did Chinese, hardly three or four words. I therefore signified to him that I did not require his services, in spite of which he held out his hand begging for money. 13th August I left Arax betimes in the morning, in company with a customs officer, and rode to the town of Natchivan, which lies in a large valley surrounded by the lofty mountains of Ararat. The country here is fertile, but there are very few trees. I never had so much trouble to obtain shelter in any place as in this. I had two letters, one to a German physician, the other to the governor. I did not wish to go to the latter in my traveling dress, as I was again among cultured people who are accustomed to judge of you by your dress, and there was no inn. I therefore intended to ask accommodation in the doctor's house. I showed the address which was written in the native language to several people to read, that they might point out the house to me, but they all shook their heads and let me go on. At last I came to the custom house, where my little luggage was immediately taken possession of, and myself conducted to the inspector. He spoke a little German, but paid no regard to my request. He told me to go into the custom house and unlock my portmanteau. The inspector's wife and sister accompanied me. I was much astonished at his politeness, but found, however, too soon that other reasons had induced them to come. Both the ladies wished to see what I had brought with me. They had chairs brought, and took their places before my portmanteau, which was opened. When three pair of hands were thrust in, a number of papers folded together, coins, dried flowers, and other objects obtained from Nineveh, were instantly seized, hold of, and thrown about. Every ribbon, every cap, was taken out, and it was clearly perceptible 
that the inspector's wife had some difficulty in parting with them again. After this was sufficiently examined, a common box which contained my greatest treasure, a small relief from Nineveh, was brought forward. One of the men took hold of a heavy wooden axe for the purpose of striking off the lid. This was rather too much for me, and I would not allow it. To my great satisfaction, a German woman came in just at this moment. I told her what was in the box, and that I did not object to its being opened, although I wished them to do it carefully, with a chisel and pincers. But strange to say, there were no such tools in the place, although they were wanted daily. I at last succeeded in persuading them to break off the lid with care, notwithstanding the anxiety I was in, I could not help laughing at the foolish faces which both the women and the customs officer made when they saw the fragments of brick from Babylon and the somewhat damaged Ninevite head. They could not at all comprehend why I should carry such objects with me. The German woman, Henrietta Alexandra, invited me to take coffee with her, and when she heard of my perplexity with respect to law lodging, she offered me a room in her house. On the following day I visited the governor, who received me very politely and overpowered me with favors. I was obliged to move into his house directly. He attended to my passport and obtained all the necessary visas, of which I required half a dozen since entering the Christian dominions, and made an agreement for me with some Tartars whose caravan was going to Tiflis. I then looked round the miserable, half-ruined town with the good Mrs. Alexandra, and saw Noah's monument. According to Persian accounts, Nakhivan is said to have been one of the largest and handsomest towns in Armenia, and Armenian writers affirm that Noah was the founder. The modern town is built quite in an oriental style. Only a few of the houses have the windows and doors turned towards the street, generally, the front faces the small garden. The dress of the people is also rather like the Persian. But the officials, merchants, etc., wear European costume. Nothing more remains of Noah's sepulchre than a small arched chamber without a cupola. It appears to have been formerly covered with one, but it is not possible to decide from the few ruins that now remain in the interior neither a sarcophagus nor grave are to be seen. A single brick pillar stands in the center and supports the roof. The whole is surrounded by a low wall. Many pilgrims come here, Mohammedans as well as Christians, and both sects entertain the remarkable belief that if they press a stone into the wall while thinking of something at the same time, and the stone remains sticking to the wall, that their thoughts are either true or will come to pass, and the reverse when the stone does not adhere. The truth of the matter is, however, simply this. The cement or mortar is always rather moist, and if a smooth stone is pushed a little upwards while being pressed, it remains hanging. If it is only pressed horizontally, it falls off again. Not far from Noah's tomb stands another very handsome monument. Unfortunately, I could not learn to whose memory it was erected or to what age it belonged. It consists of a high building resembling a tower with twelve angles. The walls between the angles are covered from top to bottom 
with the most artistic mathematical figures in triangles and sexagons and some places are inlaid with glazed tiles the monument is surrounded by a wall forming a small courtyard at the entrance gates stand half-ruined towers like minarets seventeenth august i felt very unwell to-day which was the more unpleasant as the caravan started in the evening for several days i had been unable to take food and suffered from excessive lassitude nevertheless i left my rest and mounted my caravan nag i thought that change of air would be the best restorative fortunately we went only a short distance beyond the city gate and remained there during the night and the following day we did not proceed any further until the evening of the eighteenth of august the caravan only conveyed goods and the drivers were tartars the journey from nakhivan to tiflis is generally made in from twelve to fourteen days but with my caravan to judge from the progress we made at the commencement it would have occupied six weeks for on the first day we went scarcely any distance and on the second very little more than the first i should have traveled quicker on foot nineteenth august it is really unbearable during the whole day we lay in waste doubled fields exposed to the most scorching heat and did not mount our horses until nine o'clock in the evening about an hour afterwards we halted and encamped the only thing good about this caravan was the food the tartars do not live so frugally as the arabs every evening an excellent pilau was made with good tasting fat frequently with dried grapes or plums almost every day beautiful water and sugar melons were brought to us to buy the sellers mostly tartars always selected a small lot and offered it to me as a present the road led continually through large fertile valleys round the foot of ararat to-day i saw the majestic mountain very clearly and in tolerable proximity i should think that we were not more than two or three miles from it it seemed from its magnitude as if separated from the other mountains and standing alone but it is in fact connected with a chain of taurus by a low range of hills its highest summit is divided in such a way that between two peaks there is a small plain on which it is said that noah's ark was left after the deluge there are people who affirm that it would still be found there if the snow could be removed in the more recent treatise on geography the height of ararat is given as sixteen thousand feet in the older ones as eleven thousand the persians and armenians call this mountain Machis. the grecian writers describe it as part of the taurus range ararat is quite barren and covered above with perpetual snow lower down lies the cloister Arakilvank at the place where Noah is said to have taken up his first abode. 20th August. We encamped in the neighborhood of the village Gaddis. Many commentators of the scriptures placed the Garden of Eden in the Armenian province of Ararat. In any case, Armenia has been the scene of most important events. Nowhere have so many bloody battles taken place as in this country. 
as all the great conquerors of Asia have brought Armenia under their control. 21st August We still continue near Ararat. Meanwhile, we pass by Russian and German colonies. The houses in the latter had exactly the appearance of those in German mountain villages. The road was, throughout, very uneven and stony, and I cannot imagine how the post can travel upon it. Today I met with another very unpleasant adventure. My caravan, encamped in the neighborhood of the station Sidon, about fifty paces from the side of the post road, towards eight in the evening, I walked out as far as the road, and as I was about to return, I heard the sound of post horses coming. I remained in the road to see the travelers, and noticed a Russian seated in an open car, and by his side a Cossack with a musket. When the vehicle had passed, I turned quietly round, but to my astonishment heard it stop, and felt myself almost at the same moment seized forcibly by the arms. It was the Cossack who held me, and endeavored to drag me to the car. I tried to release myself pointed to the caravan, and said that I belonged to it. The fellow immediately stopped my mouth with his hand, and threw me into the car, where I was tightly held by the other man. The Cossack immediately jumped up, and the driver urged his horses on as quickly as they could go. The whole was done so quickly that I scarcely knew what had happened to me. The men held me tightly by the arms and my mouth was kept covered up until we were so far from the caravan that the people belonging to it could no longer have heard my cries. Fortunately, I was not frightened. I thought at once that these two amiable Russians might, in their zeal, have taken me for a very dangerous person, and have supposed they had made a very important capture. When they uncovered my mouth, they commenced questioning me as to my native country, name, etc. I understood enough Russian to give them this information, but they were not satisfied with that, and required to see my passport. I told them that they must send for my portmanteau, and then I could show them that I had permission to travel. We came at last to the post-house, where I was taken into a room. The Cossack placed himself with his musket, under the open door, so as to keep his eye continually on me, and the other man, who, from his dark green velvet facings, I supposed to be one of the emperor's officers, remained some time in the room. At the end of half an hour the postmaster, or whoever he was, came to examine me, and to hear an account of the achievements of my captors, who hastened with laughing countenances, to give a complete statement of what had happened. I was obliged to pass the night under strict guard upon a wooden bench, without either a wrapper or a mantle with me, and suffering from hunger and thirst. They neither gave me a coverlet nor a piece of bread, and when I merely rose from the bench to walk up and down the room, the Cossack rushed in immediately, seized my arms, and led me back to the bench, telling me, at the same time that I must remain there quietly. Towards morning they brought me luggage, when I showed them my papers and was set at liberty. Instead, however, of apologizing for having treated me in such a way, they laughed at me, and when I came out into the court, every one pointed at me with their fingers and joined my jailers in their laughter. Oh, 
you good Turks, Arabs, Persians, Hindus, or whatever else you may be called, such treatment was never shown to me amongst you. How pleasantly have I always taken leave of all your countries, how attentively I was treated at the Persian frontiers when I would not understand that my passport was required, and here in a Christian empire how much incivility I have had to bear during this short journey. On the 20th of August I rejoined my caravan, where I was received with cordiality. 23rd August The country still presented the same features, one large valley succeeding another. These valleys are less cultivated than those in Persia. Today, however, I saw one which was tolerably well planted, and in which the villagers had even planted trees before their huts. 24th August Station Erevan I was happy to have reached this town, as I hoped to meet with some of my country people here, and by their help to find a quicker mode of conveyance to Tiflis. I was determined to leave the caravan, since we did not go more than four hours a day. I had two letters, one to the town physician, the other to the governor. The latter was in the country. Dr. Müller, however, received me so well that I could not possibly have been better taken care of. Erevan is situated on the river Zengui and is the capital of Armenia. It contains about 17,000 inhabitants and is built upon low hills in a large plain surrounded on all sides with mountains. The town has some fortified walls, although the European mode of architecture already begins to predominate greatly. This town is by no means to be reckoned among either the handsome or cleanly ones. I was most amused by the bazaars, not on account of their contents, for these do not present any remarkable features, but because I always saw there different and, for the most part, unknown national costumes. There were Tartars, Cossacks, Circassians, Georgians, Mingralians, Turconians, Armenians, etc., chiefly powerful, handsome people with fine, expressive features, particularly the Tartars and Circassians. Their dress partly resembled the Persian, indeed, that of the Tartars differed from it only by the points to the boots and a less lofty cap. The points on the boots are frequently as much as four inches long and turn inwards and towards the end. The caps are also pointed and made of black fur, but not more than half as high. Very few of the women in these tribes are seen in the streets, and those are enveloped in wrappers. Nevertheless, they do not veil their faces. The Russians and the Cossacks have stupid, coarse features, and their behavior corresponds completely to what their appearance indicates. I never met with a people so covetous, coarse, and slavish as they are. When I ask about anything, they either gave me a surly answer, or none at all, or else laughed in my face. This rudeness would not, perhaps, have appeared so remarkable if I'd come from Europe. It had already been my intention on Nakhchivan to travel with the Russian post, but I had been dissuaded from doing so, as I was assured that as a solitary woman I should not be able to agree with the people. 
However, here I was determined to do so, and I requested Dr. Muller to make the necessary preparations for me. In order to travel in Russia by the post, it is necessary to procure a padrashni, a certificate of permission, which is only to be had in a town where there are several grades of officials, as this important document requires to be taken to six of the number. First, to the treasurer. Second, to the police. Of course, with the passport, certificate of residence, etc. Third, to the commandant. Fourth, again to the police. Fifth, again to the treasurer. And sixth, to the police again. In the Pedrojny, an accurate account must be given of how far the traveler wishes to go, as the postmaster dare not proceed a single worst beyond the station named. Finally, a half kopeck, half kreutzer, must be paid per worst for each horse. This at first does not appear much, but is nevertheless a considerable tax, when it is remembered that seven worst are only equal to a geographical mile, and that three horses are always used. On the 26th of August, about four in the morning, the post was to have been at the house. It struck six, and there was still no appearance of it. If Dr. Muller had not been so kind as to go there, I should not have started until the evening. About seven I got off an excellent foretaste of my future progress. We traveled certainly with speed, but any one who had not a body of iron or a well-cushioned spring carriage would not find this very agreeable, and would certainly prefer to travel slower upon these uneven bad roads. The post-carriage for which ten kopecks a station is paid is nothing more than a very short wooden open car with four wheels. Instead of a seat, some hay is laid in it and there is just room enough for a small chest upon which the driver sits. These cars naturally jolt very much. There is nothing to take hold of, and it requires some care to avoid being thrown out. The draft consists of three horses abreast. Over the center one, a wooden arch is fixed, on which hang two or three bells, which continually made a most disagreeable noise. In addition to this, imagine the rattling of the carriage and the shouting of the driver, who is always in great activity, urging on the poor animals. And it may be easily understood that, as is often the case, the carriage arrives at the station without the travelers. The division of the stations is very irregular, varying from 14 to 30 worsty. Between the second and the third stations, I passed over a very short space of ground, where I found a kind of lava, exactly resembling the beautiful, brilliant, glassy lava of Iceland, black agate also, called obsidian, which was stated to be found in that island only. The second stage led through a newly erected Russian village extending to Lake Liman. August 27th. Today I had another evidence of the pleasure of traveling by the Russian post. On the previous evening I had ordered and paid for everything beforehand, yet I was obliged in the morning to awaken the post officers myself, as well as to see after the driver, and to be constantly about among the people in order to get away. At the third station, 
I was kept waiting three hours for the horses. At the fourth, they gave me none, and I was obliged to stay all night, although I had gone only fifty-five worsti the whole day. The character of the country changes before reaching Delekshan. The valleys contract to narrow gorges, and the mountains seldom leave space for small villages and plots of ground. The naked masses of rock cease, and the luxuriant woods cover the heights. Near Pippis, the last stage that I went today, beautiful cliffs and rocks rose close to the post road, many of them presenting the appearance of enormous columns. August 28th. Continual trouble with the post people. I am the greatest enemy of scolding and harsh treatment, but I should have best liked to have spoken to these people with a stick. No idea can be formed of their stupidity, coarseness, and want of feeling. Officers, as well as servants, are frequently found at all hours of the day sleeping or drunk. In this state they do as they please, will not stir from their places, and even laugh in the faces of unfortunate travelers. By the aid of much quarreling and noise, one is at last induced to drag out the car, a second to grease it, another baits the horses, which have often to be harnessed, then the straps are not in order, and must be first fastened and repaired, and innumerable other things of this kind which are done with the greatest tardiness. When afterwards in the towns I expressed my disapprobation of these wretched post-establishments, I received an answer that these countries had been too short a time under Russian dominion, that the imperial city was too far distant, and that I, as a single woman without servants, might consider myself fortunate in having got through as I had. I did not know what reply to make to this, except that in the most recently acquired colonial possessions of the English, which are still farther from their capital, everything is excellently arranged, and that there a woman without servants was as quickly attended to as a gentleman since they find their money not less acceptable than that of the latter. The case is very different, however, at a Russian post-station. When an official or officer comes, every one is active enough, cringing around the watering-place, for fear of flogging or punishment. Officers and officials belong in Russia to the privileged class, and assume all kinds of despotism. If, for example, they do not travel on duty, they should not, according to the regulations, have any greater advantages than private travelers. But instead of setting a good example and showing the mass of the people that the laws and regulations must be observed, it is precisely these people who set all laws in defiance. They send a servant forward, or borrow one from their fellow travelers, to the station to announce that on such and such a day they shall arrive, and will require eight or twelve horses. If any hindrance occurs during this time, a hunt or a dinner, or if the wife of the traveler has a headache or the cramp, they postpone the journey without any ado to another day or two. The horses stand constantly ready, and the postmaster dare not venture to give them to private travelers. It may so happen that the travelers have, in such a case, to wait one or even two days 
at a station and do not get through their journey quicker by the post than by a caravan in the course of my journey by the russian post i several times went only a single stage during a whole long day when i saw a uniform i was always in dread and made up my mind that i should have no horses in each post house there are one or two rooms for travelers and a merry cossack in charge who together with his wife attends to strangers and cooks for them no charge is made for the room the first comer is entitled to it these attendants are all as obliging as the stable people and it is often difficult to procure with money a few eggs milk or anything of the kind the journey through persia was dangerous that through asiatic russia however was so troublesome that i would prefer the former under any circumstances from pippis the country again diminishes in beauty the valleys expand the mountains become lower and both are frequently without trees and barren i met to-day several nomadic parties of tartars the people sat upon oxen and horses and others were loaded with their tents and household utensils the cows and sheep of which there were always a great number were driven by the side the tartar women were mostly richly clothed and also very ragged their dress consisted almost entirely of deep red silk which was often even embroidered with gold they wore wide trousers a long caftan and a shorter one over that on the head a kind of beehive called a shawb made of the bark of trees painted red and ornamented with tinsel coral and small coins from the breast to the girdle their clothes were also covered with similar things over the shoulders hung a cord with an amulet in the nose they wore small rings they had large wrappers thrown around them but left their faces uncovered their household goods consisted of tents handsome rugs iron pots copper coins etc the tartars are mostly of the mohammedan religion the permanent tartars have very peculiar dwellings which may be called enormous mole hills their villages are chiefly situated on the declivities and hills in which they dig holes of the size of spacious rooms the light falls only through the entrance or outlet this is broader than it is high and is protected by a long and broad portico of planks resting either upon beams or the stems of trees nothing is more comical than to see such a village consisting of nothing but these porticos and neither window doors nor walls those who dwell in the plains make artificial mounds of earth and build their huts of stone or wood they then throw earth over them which they stamp down tightly so that the huts themselves cannot be seen at all until within the last sixty years it is said that many such dwellings were to be seen in the town of tiflis end of section thirty eight recording by jeanie whitfield from traditions in biloxi mississippi